The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible in part by our signature partner, Amgen. Committed to transforming new ideas and discoveries into medicines for patients with serious illness. The following episode is made possible by an independent grant from Merck and Company Incorporated. I was living my dream working as a television producer. Ladies and gentlemen, Tamika Felder. I actually remember thinking, wow, 25 is pretty amazing. And then cancer comes in and says, hold up, wait a minute. Tamika was diagnosed with cervical cancer when she was 25 in 2001. You know, in the archaic age of 2001, we didn't have social media. We didn't even have the internet um, as we do now. I was diagnosed with brain cancer in 96. I was 21. We're going to tell you what it was like back in the day as a young adult cancer survivor trying to find your tribe and navigate life, love, sex, fertility, and so much more. I wanted to talk to someone who was in their 20s, who was just starting their career, who, you know, wasn't married, who was, you know, pissed off. Pissed off. From Offscript Media, my name is Matthew Zachary, and you are listening to The Cancer Mavericks, A History of Survivorship. In this episode, we're going to dive through young adult cancer and look at the unique set of problems that survivors face. At a time in your life when you're supposed to be getting ready to take on the world, cancer shows up and ruins everything. Now, cancer at any age is craptastic. Cancer sucks for any age, but for young adults specifically. Sage Bolte is the chief philanthropy officer and president of the Innova Health Foundation in Northern Virginia. Because of the financial toxicity, the relationship impact, the way that it changes their view on mortality and immortality, their ability to maintain a job or get hired when they are in treatment uh, is significantly different than their older peers who have established careers. You're in the young adult category if you've been diagnosed anywhere between ages 15 and 39. Young adults in the cancer world are sometimes called AYAs, adolescents and young adults. But that term didn't even exist until the mid-90s. Before that, researchers were way more focused on pediatric cancer, even though there were more AYA survivors. The young adult voice is incredibly important because it was a group that was being lost between pediatric and geriatric. Many young adults are in utter disbelief when they get diagnosed. No one was there with me and I felt so alone. I felt so scared. I actually thought that this doctor was a quack. She didn't know what she was talking about because I didn't look or feel sick. It's like, huh? What? What are you even talking about? I thought, you're nuts. I'm not sick. My father died of cancer. I know what someone with cancer looks like. Lindsay Norbeck was nine months out of college, working her first job living in San Francisco with friends. While she was training for a marathon, she noticed a canker sore that wasn't going away. I thought I was the healthiest I had ever been. 
Just a few weeks later, she was diagnosed with tongue cancer. Cancer treatments often leave long-lasting side effects, as we've mentioned in past episodes. But young adults often have what doctors refer to as the long road. It's a term used to describe late effects, side effects that can turn up years after treatment has concluded. I'm 25 years out, and I'm still feeling it. Now, all of this is referred to as quality of life issues. Sometimes it's abbreviated as QOL, and it's becoming more and more of a cancer research specialty. Quality of life is code word for side effect city. And when you're 80 and you have 20 years to go, maybe, you have to deal with side effects for maybe 20 years. But when you're 20 and you have to deal with side effects for 80 years, that is a different algorithm. A different algorithm. I love that. What does quality of life even mean? That's Sage Bolte again. It's the things that really make us feel like um, we aren't able to live in the ways we want, that we aren't able to do the things we want, that, you know, I, I long for being able to take a walk in the park, but I can't even make it five steps, right? I long to want to be intimate with my partner, but I can't even get comfortable enough in my own skin to kiss him, right? Or to kiss her. Sage is also a clinical social worker who specializes in oncology. She's worked with some of the earliest pioneers in this field, and she's a certified sex therapist. Sex is kind of one of those really big quality of life issues. I'm like, am I ever gonna have sex again? Tamika had to get a hysterectomy, chemo, and radiation. When her treatments were finally over, the only thing her doctor said about her post-cancer sex life was, don't have sex for eight weeks. Like I had the top third of my vagina removed. You can literally see every single staple that was stapled to hold my body together. When I get naked in front of somebody, what are they gonna think? One third of AYA survivors report problems with sexual function, and one-fifth report sexual limitations because of their cancer. You know, you anticipate being 25 and having fun dating, probably not even in a significant relationship, just dating and having fun. And they're faced with very different kinds of conversations. On top of all those conversations, Tamika also had a health insurance battle on her hands. Her cancer treatments would cause infertility. So she wanted to freeze her eggs beforehand. But in 2001, Maryland health insurers didn't cover a cancer patient's fertility preservation treatments. I didn't have some bootleg insurance. I had a PPO and I paid a lot of money for it. That was denied, which is complete BS. Tamika's doctors fought by her side as she battled her insurance company on this. How could I not have been depressed being 25, just starting my career, losing my fertility? I wasn't in a rush to have children, but at some point in life, 
I had planned to have a family. It was a huge loss to Tamika, a shot at her quality of life. Tamika would later go on to testify for legislation in Maryland that required insurers to cover fertility preservation for cancer patients. For Lindsay, the marathon runner, her biggest worry was losing all or part of her tongue. That would affect speaking, eating, swallowing, kissing. But one of her surgeons was ready to try a unique course of treatment. Radiation first, instead of surgery first, to shrink the tumor. Eight weeks of radiation. That alone worked. Lindsay says her doctor sort of showed her how to advocate and think about the road ahead. She, without me even realizing it, prioritized my quality of life. But two years later, she found a bump in her neck. Her cancer had returned and spread to her lymph nodes. Doctors told her this time she'd need surgery, chemo, and radiation. Her oncologist went through the side effects with her, but never mentioned fertility. Lindsay says she thought, okay, if he didn't mention it, it must not be an issue. The next morning I woke up and thought, I have to ask. I can't just like assume. So I called him back, asked, and he said, oh, there's a 90% chance you'll be permanently sterilized. And I said, I don't understand. Why didn't you tell me this? Um, and his response was like, well, we need to focus on curing you and then we can think about building a family later. But Lindsay wasn't having it. I said, I refuse chemotherapy in the name of motherhood. Her doctors were dumbfounded. But to her, it made perfect sense. I was 22 at the time and I um, really felt like, I mean, if you're going to remove my tongue remove my ability to have kids, you know, take all of these things away from me. Like, why bother? I'm out. See ya. Like, I I choose death over this, which I know is somewhat irrational, somewhat naive, and that um, not everyone would agree with. But that is really how I felt. She came up with a compromise with her doctors. They said if she could find a way to freeze her eggs and preserve her fertility within the two-month window between her surgery and chemo, fine. So Lindsay started calling every fertility clinic, but she was striking out. In the early 2000s, egg freezing was still in its early stages. And then, bam, she got lucky. Someone answered the phone by mistake and got me and was like, oh yeah, we have a new egg freezing protocol for cancer patients, come in tomorrow. Lindsay was able to preserve her fertility and start chemo and radiation on time. It wasn't long after her treatment started when Lindsay realized she'd almost missed her chance. When I was in the chemo room, I would ask other people, like, did you bank your sperm? Did you freeze your eggs? And I quickly learned that was a very bad topic in that room because no one knew. She found a 2002 study published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that surveyed only men. They didn't survey any women. It said 
only 60% of the patients have been told about infertility as a side effect of cancer treatment. Lindsay thought to herself, this makes no sense. There are a lot of things in cancer that will take years and years to solve. This is solvable today. Six months after her treatment, she'd written a business plan, raised money, and launched a nonprofit called Fertile Hope. In 2006, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, published a new fertility preservation guideline. It said that as part of the standard of care, every patient must be informed of their cancer treatment's risk to their fertility. Lindsay helped write it. Having that ASCO guideline changes everything. The establishment has agreed this is important and every patient should be informed. Score one for the Young Adult Cancer Mavericks. Coming up. Additional support for the Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible by the following partners. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Sankyo, Merck, CGen, Takeda, Pharmacyclics, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen. Learn more about these supporters at cancermavericks.com. The year was 1997. I was finished with my cancer treatments, and I was 22 years old. It didn't even occur to me that they were people like me, cancer survivors in their 20s. I stumbled upon this support group at Gilda's Club in Manhattan. Gilda's Club was named after the late comedian Gilda Radner. I went to the infamous Red Door on Houston Street, and everyone there was like 80 years old. I stayed as a courtesy, but I never went back. It only reinforced that I wanted to be with people my age. Senior producer Mary Rose Madden is going to take it from here. In 1997, President Bill Clinton made big changes to Medicare, changes that advanced the war on cancer that Nixon had started. On New Year's Day, we'll introduce a series of changes in Medicare that will make screening, prevention, and detection of cancer more affordable and frequent. Screening and detection are important parts of catching cancer and curing it, But what about the care and support that it takes to survive cancer? What about survivorship? Okay, so you know how back in the 1970s that cancer alumni group met in Albuquerque? They started to see that they shared many of the same problems, some physical, some psychosocial. And then the wheels of the survivorship movement started to turn. The movement was slowly chugging along. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, the topic of survivorship itself wasn't an issue that many people knew about yet. Patients weren't seeing the oncology social workers, care plans, survivorship centers that they might see today. And young adult survivorship support? No. No way. But then something so funny happened. People started coming out of the woodwork again, kind of forming their own second wave of a survivorship movement. 
Tamika, Lindsay, and Heidi Adams. I found my story to be very typical of a young person. You know, nobody thinks you have cancer. Nobody's going to suspect it. In 1993, Heidi Adams felt pain in her ankle. After eight months of x-rays, ultrasounds, and multiple doctors, she was diagnosed with Ewing's sarcoma, a rare type of cancer that grows in and around the bones. She was 26 years old, and she went from traveling, bartending, kind of floating around the world, to an oncology wing. You know, you end up with a lot of time on your hands when you're (laughs) sitting in a hospital bed and just thinking about things. So much thinking. Now, this is the early 90s. So, still before Google, Facebook, GoFundMe, young adult cancer patients felt isolated, like they were going it alone. Sometimes they were in the pediatric oncology unit, where the chairs were a foot off the ground and there were Disney characters painted on the walls. Sometimes they were in the adult wing, AARP magazines scattered about. And that just wasn't going to work, Heidi says. You know, we were young. We watched David Letterman, you know, there was South Park and it, it, Beavis and Butthead, you know, where like is, it was the cultural touchstones. And there's a lot of weird shit that happens, you know, and some of it is dark humor is like the way to, to, to really understand it and grasping and get it. And I didn't see that anywhere. She tried to write a newsletter for the hospital that would capture that perspective. They missed the point entirely. We sent them our funny, irreverent things, and it came back like all syrupy and inoffensive. (laughs) And we were like, hmm, I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. Soon after, she and a friend wrote a book titled Here and Now about surviving cancer. Heidi says she learned a lot from writing that book enough to know she should keep going. She started working some connections she'd made and soon had funding to create a website that would reflect young adult cancer truths. The year was 2000, still the early days of the internet. The website was called Planet Cancer. It was this acknowledgement that when you receive a cancer diagnosis, you are launched into this new place. It's a whole new culture. The language is different. The Traditions are different. People dress different. There's white coats and acronyms and long words, and it feels like a completely foreign place. And so that was, you know, Planet Cancer was just the immediate nickname for it. Like, oh, wow, you know, now I'm on Planet Cancer and I got to learn the ropes, you know. The Planet Cancer website had loads of info. It had real world advice, movie and book recommendations, a forum, which was super popular, and a section called Black Tarry Stool. It was a floating stool just like dripping with black tar, right? Because black tarry stool was a side effect that came up in every medication. So in Black Tarry Stool, you'd find cancer comics, stories, and Planet Cancer's top 10 lists. They were famous for these. Top 10 signs you've joined a cheap HMO. Number two, the radiation techs are wearing old stormtrooper costumes. Number one, the only expense covered 100% is embalming. Oh my God, they were so funny. Top 10 worst responses when someone tells you they have cancer. Top 10 ways to break the ice with your nurse. You get the idea. (laughs) Dark humor. (laughs) 
They also had merchandise for sale. Lots of t-shirts. It's a planet cancer, just like Animal Planet, but with less hair. <laughs> just, oh, this was one of my favorites. Planet cancer, we've done drugs Keith Richards never heard of. The website took off. Honestly, it was more like a magnet. You know, people just found it and they just came. It just worked. Humor makes things less terrifying. And if you can laugh at something, it loses power over you. Heidi started adding to the website. Message boards, retreats, meeting in real life made a huge difference. Because you didn't see each other otherwise. You wouldn't, you would never run into another young person in the hospital. Like, they're just not there. There's too few. They could find each other through Planet Cancer and make friends. It was all like creating this ecosystem. And of course, Heidi started meeting other young survivors, like Lindsay and Tamika. She also met Doug Ullman. Doug was just about to enter his sophomore year at college in the summer of 1996 when he found out he had a tumor in the cartilage of his ribs. Like others, up until then, he thought he was perfectly healthy. I mean, he was on the college soccer team. So his cancer diagnosis sent him into a spiral. Sort of, a, it was like a roller coaster of, of emotions uh, that I was not equipped at 19 to sort of deal with. His doctors treated his cancer, but then he couldn't find anyone his age who understood what he'd gone through. Remember, there was no planet cancer yet. We called around to a lot of organizations and asked about their programming and what, what services, what support, what, what do you offer? And the responses we got were totally unsatisfying. The responses ranged from, oh, pe literally, people your age don't get cancer, so we don't offer anything. I mean, that was one response from a very reputable large organization um, to other organizations that said, oh, yeah, we, we do some things, but nobody shows up. Doug says he and his family quickly saw this giant hole in the cancer community. We had no idea what we were doing. We just started to brainstorm, like, what could we create? Pretty soon, they started to build their organization. They had things like college scholarships for cancer survivors, support groups, and they published a guidebook. The Almond Cancer Fund for Young Adults started to bloom. Now, in 1996, the same year that Doug was diagnosed, Lance Armstrong was diagnosed with stage 3 testicular cancer. Just like Doug had started a nonprofit, Lance started the Lance Armstrong Foundation in 1997. Lance heard about Doug's work through a friend. I actually received an email from Lance Armstrong in October of 1997. He said, look, if there's anything we can ever do to collaborate, let me know. And then he said, always remember, we're the lucky ones. For years, they emailed back and forth. At the time, Armstrong wasn't really famous yet. But a few years later, he became a household name. 1999. American Lance Armstrong won the 2,300-mile Tour de France bicycle race on Sunday. He had been diagnosed with cancer three years ago and dedicated his victory to other cancer survivors. Armstrong In 2000, three years after that first email, Doug and Lance met for the first time in person. He just said, look, we're raising money and we aren't sure how to spend the money. Lance hired Doug, only his fourth employee, as the director of survivorship services at the Lance Armstrong Foundation. Lance at the time was becoming more well-known globally, and so was attracting a lot of interest from uh, 
potential donors and partners. It was the early 2000s, so Lance was winning tournaments, and of course, he was a cancer survivor. Doug says this combination made the fundraising possibilities seem endless. We grew very fast. Um, and, you know, again, there was tons of opportunity on the fundraising side. So events and, and, and development uh, sort of grew quickly. And then the program side began to grow as well. Soon, Lance got a seat at the table, the big table. For six years, between 2002 to 2008, Lance sat on the president's cancer panel. That meant, along with doctors, researchers, and advocates who advised the president on the National Cancer Program, Lance was right there, talking up survivorship needs. We have to set some, I think, some serious timelines and say, okay, great, we can study and review and assess, but at some point we have to act. Lance was on the panel pressing for concrete plans. If we don't set some timelines, then then we're just spinning our wheels, so to speak, and that's not, that's not very good, quite frankly. By the time it was 2004, Lance Armstrong had won several Tour de France titles. And then Nike stepped in. Nike came up with the idea for a yellow wristband with the word Livestrong imprinted on it. It sold for just $1. All the money went back to the Lance Armstrong Foundation. Doug says he was actually skeptical of the idea at first. I just wasn't sure. I wasn't sure that people would wear something like outwardly all the time showing that they were a part of um, the cancer world. Nike made 5 million bracelets to start. We sold through the 5 million so fast. And at the time, we had nine employees at the foundation. We had never run an e-commerce store. Um, so it was, a wild, it was a wild year or two of learning a lot. <laughs> so r- rough numbers probably went from raising $15 million a year to 50. Yeah, it was big growth. The Livestrong phenomenon and the yellow wristband changed everything. Lindsay Norbeck. Lance Armstrong made cancer cool. And I promise you, up until that moment, we did not feel cool. The Lance Armstrong Foundation had created the country's hottest accessory and raised millions of dollars. By this point, advocates were starting to meet and share info. Anyone in the young adult cancer world could see there was a bigger problem, Heidi Adams says. Right about that time, you know, Dr. Archie Blyer had, had done his seminal research that showed young adult survival rates had not improved since the 70s. Dr. Archie Blyer is a clinical research professor at Oregon Health and Science University and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas McGovern Medical School. And Heidi says he's the godfather of the AYA cancer world. In 2006, Blyer published a study that examined survival rates from 1975 to 2000 in three age groups. We saw that the increase in survival rates of children and older adults had gone up about 10 percent. That's real progress. But there was no survival rate increase in one group. Dr. Blyer says when he looked at the data for young adults and adolescents... He was shocked. It says that they had no improvement in their survival rate. And so that the younger and older persons were catching up to them. They were starting to have the same goods or better survival than AYAs. But AYAs were being left behind. The data was clear. There was a huge gap between the improvement for AYA cancer survivors and all the other age groups. And that was just a slap in the face. You know, that's just like, really? That's just 
unacceptable. And so we went to the NCI and said, look, this is your data. What are you doing about it? And they said, not much. 2006, the Lance Armstrong Foundation sponsored a group of experts to take this data and create recommendations for AYA cancer treatments. Together with the NCI, they published a report called Closing the Gap, Research and Care Imperatives for Adolescents and Young Adults with Cancer. That report was the foundation for the movement. Everyone, everything coalesced around the Closing the Gap report because it was the first time that uh, young adult cancer was acknowledged as a thing. After the report was released, the Lance Armstrong Foundation formed a group of researchers, doctors, and advocates. It was called the Young Adult Alliance. Doug, Heidi, Tamika, and Lindsay were some of those advocates. It was really fun to walk in and see the tribe of people who had all been attacking the same issue from different angles and to feel the power of something tangible being created. I mean, it was, you know, super invigorating. You know, it was a very heady time. We were all on fire. You know, we were evangelical, you remember? We're all, and, and we, um, you know, recognized each other as feeling the same and wanting to, to do the same thing. The Alliance's job was to monitor the report's recommendations over the next few years. In the Young Adult Cancer Alliance, the Lance Armstrong Foundation was the giant. They'd raised hundreds of millions of dollars for survivorship and acquired Planet Cancer and Fertile Hope. They'd created summits, partnerships with the YMCA. By this point, Lance had won seven Tour de France titles in a row. But allegations of his doping and bullying had been flying for years. In a 2013 interview with Oprah, Lance admitted that he'd been using performance-enhancing drugs. Yes or no? Did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Yes or no? In all seven of your Tour de France victories, did you ever take banned substances or blood dope? Yes. Lance admitted to doping in all seven of his wins. The chairman of the Lance Armstrong Foundation asked him to step down. They changed the name to Livestrong. It wasn't long before Nike's sponsorship was gone, and the organization's revenue took a nosedive. And the survivorship cause, Doug says that, took a massive hit. So I think it had a huge impact. And I I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to overestimate sort of the, the impact. The corporate support went away. Um, and that was a huge loss for the organization, but also just for the cause. Lance's fame brought attention that helped push the yellow bracelets. 80 million yellow bracelets had been sold. It was a feat of branding for cancer survivorship, and it showed public support in mass. But, Doug says, the scandal presented an ethical dilemma. Given the 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 lying obviously related to his athletic career you know the juxtaposed with the authenticity of his cancer journey it's like how do you how do you weigh the good and the bad 
And what about the advocates who'd galvanized around the alliance? This dedicated grassroots community was deflated. And then you sort of had to say, wait a minute, what is our goal? How does this change things? The organization started veering away from young adult cancer issues, but the work the Alliance had done on the Closing the Gap report was about to pay off. The AYA survival rates that had once been stagnant for 25 years were now comparable to pediatric survival rates. Dr. Archie Blyer. The survival rates, let alone quality of survival, the survival rates have really improved for AYAs since the gap came out. And not only have survival rates improved, but there are quite a bit more medical experts focused on AYA cancer. You know, if you look at the number of publications on young adults' AYA oncology, basically, there's now a journal, there, there's ongoing research, there are medical fellowships in young adult oncology. It's become sort of normalized in a way that it hadn't been before. With the websites, retreats, fertility preservation, and most notably, the improvements in the survival rate, the grassroots advocates claimed a victory. That was producer Mary Rose Madden. After this break, we'll take a look at the next big leap in the young adult cancer world. Additional support for The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible by the following partners. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Senkyo, Merck, Seagen, Takeda, Pharmacyclics, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen. Learn more about these supporters at cancermavericks.com. I spent a lot of time on planet cancer in the early 2000s, finally connecting with other survivors like me. I was inspired by planet cancer, and I wanted to create a space for the entire AOA community. This would be for people anywhere on the cancer continuum, something that would add to the landscape of grassroots advocates. I'd made a few new friends over the years in the survivorship world. So much so that I soon found myself sitting at a baby grand piano in front of 30,000 people playing for the American Cancer Society's 2002 Relay for Life on the Mall in Washington, D.C. This was my awakening into the cancerverse. And soon after that, I learned about the Young Adult Cancer Alliance. I founded a nonprofit in 2006 called I'm Too Young for This. It was essentially a website that pulled together any and all resources for the young adult cancer community. It was like a portal. It had links to nonprofits, cancer camps all over the country, government resources, you name it. It became so popular so quickly in 2007 that Time Magazine ranked it number 17 on its list of the best 50 websites of the year. The tagline for I'm Too Young for This was Stupid Cancer. Hey, hey, kids. Hey, 
It's the Stupid Cancer Show. That was the first episode of my internet radio show. It streamed live on Monday nights for two years. We are live on the air. Unbelievable. 904, Monday, Memorial Day, May 28th, 2007. The inaugural broadcast of the Stupid Cancer Show. The first live streaming radio broadcast giving voice to young adults affected by cancer. I produced it, I hosted it from the spare bedroom in my Brooklyn apartment for years. Eventually, I got tons of volunteers to help. We saw the numbers in the Closing the Gap report and were angry that young adult cancer was in the state it was. We were being ignored. And we were thinking, we need to raise some hell. And soon after the show launched, I met a guy who would help me do just that. When he introduced himself to me, he said, let's be rebellious. You needed to always push the envelope. And this is where I get to tell you about Lenny Sender. Lenny is an oncologist who specializes in AYA. We came together as a physician advocate coming together was like a message of listen to this advocate, listen to this patient, listen to his unique story, and then say, let's take it on any of the other patients you have. Lenny is also the guy that started the Journal of Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology, the first of its kind. He became the chairman of the board of I'm Too Young for This, In 2009, the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation formally became Stupid Cancer. The manifesto for Stupid Cancer was that it didn't matter what stage your cancer was in or how bad you had it. This was not a competition. We were focused on what we had in common. And the new tagline was get busy living. We want you to survive. We want you to thrive. We want to be able to get you through the trauma of what you're doing now. Lenny was a great person to bounce ideas off of. He had a medical background, but he was down to earth. And he was the kind of guy who gets done. Having an internet radio show was amazing. It was one of the first of its kind. But we started thinking, what else could we do? We wanted to have the retreat that people would go to. They wouldn't be at home. They could go to a place and be amongst other survivors or ongoing cancer people. The inaugural OMG Cancer Summit took place in 2008, and they followed every year after that. The conference had talks about dating and sex. We had late-night dance parties, trivia nights, scavenger hunts, cancer comedians. She points at me, and she says, has he banged sperm? And my, mo- my mother says, sperm? <laughs> Loud enough for people in distant zip codes to hear her. We had performances from pop stars like the Bare Naked Ladies. Their lead singer was a young adult cancer survivor. Hi, I'm Kevin. This is Tyler, Ed, and Jim with Bare Naked Ladies. And Ten years ago, I was diagnosed with CML, uh, which is leukemia, a form of blood cancer. And uh, I received a bone marrow transplant. And uh, 10 years later, I'm still here. I'm very happy to be here. We brought this crazy conference, the OMG Cancer Summit, 
to Las Vegas in 2012. The first one we did, we had gave them access to these clubs. They took them over. It was theirs. I was like, this is amazing because I feel like I'm with people that understand and like we're acting our age. Daniel Eichner is a pediatric leukemia survivor. She went to her first OMG summit in Vegas. It just felt real and age appropriate. And there was like this aspect of like a filter that didn't need to be there that wasn't there. Like that had always been on everything. Organizations like Stupid Cancer have given a voice to the countless young people who will no longer take no for an answer. Advocates like me and my buddies who you've heard from in this episode were not gonna go quietly. We were loud, mouthy survivors who wanted to change things. The Heidi's of the world, the Tamika's of the world. Anyone who was a young adult who survived this felt they had to give back and they wanted it to be better than what they went through. Remember what Fitzhugh Mullen said? We want to see survivors organized for services to one another, for mutuality, for friendship, for support, for veterans helping the rookie. Young Mavericks as the veterans helping the rookies. That's exactly our MO. Next time on the Cancer Mavericks. Katie Couric gets a colonoscopy on national television and changes Americans' relationship with cancer. The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is a production of Offscript Media in partnership with Small Good Thing. The executive producer is Steve Lichtine. Our senior producers are Susie Armitage, Mary Rose Madden, and Andrew McDowell. Our associate producers are Mariah Dennis and Mara Laser. And our production assistant is Sophia Kurzius. Sound design and mixing is by David Schulman. And our music is composed and performed by me, Matthew Zachary. For more information about this series, visit CancerMavericks.com. That's CancerMavericks.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.